Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Earlier in the week, the Supreme Court of Canada rejected a hearing, an Indigenous challenge, by several British Columbia First Nations to the Trans Mountain Pipeline approval. So what's that going to mean to the Alberta and Canadian economies? Many First Nations, of course, are supportive of Trans Mountain. And the province of Alberta is also engaging in a direct approach to attract businesses, investment, and engage in the growth of jobs in the province. And how much of this is a direct decision to return fire, if you will, to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's liberal federal government, often viewed in the province as obstructing Alberta's prosperity and certainly the energy sector. We're joined by the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney. Mr. Premier, thank you for taking the time. Great to be here, Roy. Thanks for the opportunity. Let me ask you this out of the gate. Have we regressed in some way in this country to the point that a significant percentage of our national population believes oil and gas is not significant to the Canadian economy? Do you think we've arrived at that point? I sure hope not. And I I would say, yeah, there is a significant but not anything close to majority public sentiment in that way. Uh, Roy, oil and gas is the largest sector of the Canadian economy. Half a million Canadian jobs depend on it. Think about that for a moment. That is half a million families. Uh, so well over a million people, kids whose parents put food on the table and a roof over their heads uh, in order because of the oil and gas sector. It is by far our largest export industry. We sell the Americans alone $100 billion dollars worth of, of oil alone, just out of Alberta. Um, it, it is um, also, you know, we, we always hear the stuff about tech and innovation and uh, uh, the uh, digital economy. Well, guess what? One of the, the biggest investor in tech and innovation in Canada is the oil and gas industry. It's driven by cutting-edge technology. So I think there, unfortunately, is some, some fairly widespread ignorance about these facts. Uh, and we need to understand that that without the oil and gas industry, there would be a massive hole blown through the center of the Canadian economy, not just in Alberta and Newfoundland, but right across the country. The Premier, two years ago, I spoke with the uh, deputy chair of TD Bank, former Premier of New Brunswick, Frank McKenna, and he pointed to a TD Bank study which showed that $107 billion was lost over seven years to the Canadian economy just through the discount at which Canadian oil, Alberta oil, is sold to the United States because they are our only foreign oil client. If you want to come back to that, I, I'm more than happy to hear what you have to say. Yeah, but know, if I can just go, go, go ahead, Premier, go ahead. Well, I just want to say on, on this, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when the political left in Canada were Canadian economic nationalists, and they hated the idea of us uh, being a discount bargain basement for the Americans. That is what we have become with oil and gas because we do not have coastal pipelines. It means that we are um, a, a captive seller to only one export market right now, the United States, which means that, that we sell our oil to them at about a one-third discount. Um, so I would say to my friends on the Canadian left, by opposing pipelines to the coasts, they have helped to subsidize American refineries owned by multinational oil companies in Donald Trump's America. Congratulations on, on um, making Canada poor and making American oil companies richer. That's what those folks have done by blocking coastal pipelines. 
Yeah. And the $107 billion that were lost over seven years, just in the discount at which we sell our oil to the United States, that didn't suddenly stop in year eight. That is still going on. Premier, uh, please give us your bottom line interpretation of what the Supreme Court ruling of this past Thursday means about Trans Mountain. Hugely important. It reaffirmed the unanimous decision of the Federal Court of Appeal, striking down the last real legal um, attack against the Trans Mountain expansion. And that decision confirmed that contrary to what we hear in so much of the media reporting and from the special interests, 120 of the 128 interested First Nations uh, with respect to TMX support, or at least do not oppose the project, that there are only eight out of 128 who are opposed. And so basically, the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, and the Federal Court of Appeal have said that um, a tiny number do not get to hold up economic progress and opportunity for the vast majority of Indigenous people and First Nations. First Nations have, you know, the, the, yeah, of course, the Crown uh, has the duty to consult, 100% agreed. And there's been years and years of exhaustive consultations uh, with First Nations on this issue. And what do the consultations tell us? That the overwhelming majority of Indigenous people and First Nations want economic rights. They want to move their people from poverty to prosperity, and that's what this project can help to do. Premier Kenny, let me talk about uh, or ask you about the other initiative that uh, that uh, that I'd like your thoughts on to share with our listeners across the country, and that is your government's move to bring investment back to Alberta, persuade businesses to locate or relocate to Alberta. Is this at least partly due to Justin Trudeau's apparent dislike for everything that has to do with Alberta and the provincial energy sector? And part B of this is, how do you persuade international investors to return mm. to investing when a significant obstacle is onerous? federal regulation concerning traditional energy infrastructure and the continued existence of bills c48 and 69 how do you accomplish what you're setting out to do well a very good question first of all we continue to fight those bills we are we are backing a group of first nations who are launching a constitutional challenge on the tanker ban bill c48 because they say it undermines their economic rights and we are taking the federal government to court on Bill C-69, which we call the No More Pipelines Law, supported by a number of other provinces, including, I'm happy to say, Quebec. And we think our, our um, legal case there is rock solid, based on Section 92A of the Constitution, something that Peter Lougheed had amended in back in uh, the early 80s, um, which says that provinces of exclusive jurisdiction to regulate the production of natural resources within their province. So we will continue to push those legal issues forward. Um, but I will tell you this, I, I, notwithstanding problems we have with the federal government, I'm an optimist. Uh, when global demand and, and the economy recovers from COVID, uh, there will be, we will experience, I believe, a supply shortage of available oil because so much of upstream um, exploration has been cancelled or indefinitely postponed. And we have a very efficient oil and gas sector in Canada. They've cut their costs by about a third in the past five years. They increasingly use smart technology. They're reducing their environmental footprint. And they also they are what um, economists would call capital efficient. Down in the U.S., when they uh, do uh, develop an oil well, like, uh, for example, a, a shale uh, well in, in the Permian Basin, it, it typically depletes that in about a year. So they're constantly churning and burning money to uh, develop the resource. Whereas in the Canadian oil sands, 
once a mine or a SAG-D project, an in-situ project is in place, they're good to produce for three decades or more. So we have a very efficient long-term um, industry here. And I think with that and the competitive tax rates and red tape that we're reducing at the provincial level, plus the pipelines that we're building, I launched the Keystone XL project uh, construction on the Alberta spread this week. Uh, we're going to bring that capital back and have a future for the industry. And it will be to the benefit of everybody in this country. And all we have to think about is all the money that has been spent by the government, the federal government, on the pandemic, money we don't have. We could see a $300 billion deficit this year. The federal uh, parliamentary budget officer told us in an interview a few weeks ago. And we're looking at a trillion-dollar national debt. So uh, what drives Alberta's economy forward will help the rest of the country. Now, Premier, let me ask you as well about this. You have said that uh, Joe Biden, you believe you could persuade Joe Biden, if he becomes president of the United States, if he's elected in November, to not do what he said he would do, and that is rip up the Keystone XL pipeline agreement. How would you do that? Well, we are engaging uh, big and influential uh, labor unions that are uh, traditional supporters of, of Mr. Biden's Democratic Party, uh, the building trades, the AFL-CIO, the steelworkers, Layuna, and others, all of whom are benefiting from jobs created by the Keystone XL pipeline. We're engaging uh, Democrat governors, senators, and others who support the project, uh, and and the federal government of Canada to make the point that uh, should Mr. Biden win, to make the point to his uh, to him and to his transition team and his prospective uh, future administration that um, cancelling a project in which a Canadian government is deeply invested uh, would be a huge insult to and do great damage to the United States' most important bilateral relationship. And also, I, I think there are some facts around this that perhaps uh, Mr. Biden is, is not completely aware of. He may not know that uh, the State Department under Barack Obama uh, validated that Keystone XL will actually reduce carbon emissions because if it doesn't come by rail, it'll sorry, it doesn't come by pipe, it'll come by rail, uh, less safely and with higher emissions. And finally, we will make the point very assertively that this is a U.S. national security interest. Democrat voters don't want the U.S. spending hundreds of billions of dollars uh, patrolling the Persian Gulf and maintaining security in the Middle East to have access to foreign oil. They want North American energy independence. For the Americans, uh, that is a national security issue, and the solution to that problem is Canada. One more question for you. You are uh, traveling through Alberta, and uh, what are you hearing from the people of Alberta about their sense of being Canadian? And uh, because we've talked about this before, you and I have talked about it on the air not, not long ago, about the sense of national unity and it being under at least stress. What are you hearing from the people of Alberta? Well, I'm hearing a lot of that stress. Obviously, uh, it's just a triple whammy uh, on top of the worst public health crisis in a century, the worst global economic contraction since the 30s, and the worst uh, collapse in oil prices in history, and uh, probably a real effective unemployment rate north of 20%. On top of five years of tough times here, it's hard to describe to you uh, the, the, the suffering that many people here are going through, not to minimize what's happening to the rest of the country, but we've already been in a trough for five years. Um, having said that, right, what I'm hearing from Albertans, I've been on my uh, first uh, bit of my summer tour, is just an amazing resilience. Uh, there is something 
I don't know. I've always said Alberta is a magnet for risk takers and entrepreneurs. You know, our population's almost doubled in 35 years, largely with Canadians from coast to coast who have a deep work ethic and an entrepreneurial instinct moving west. And that, I see that resilience. Um, I'll never forget the president of the National Bank, Louis Vachon, said to me about two months ago, I was feeling pretty down. We were selling Alberta oil at negative prices. He said, Premier, doesn't matter how low the oil prices go, your most important asset is the entrepreneurial culture and work ethic of Albertans. I am seeing that in spades. It frankly makes me emotional to see the stories of, of, of how people are, are fighting to get through this, to adapt, to innovate, to recover. All right. Premier Kenny, good talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Good luck with your project. Thanks, as always, for your interest in this province, Ray. I appreciate it. Yeah, very definitely. Thank you. Jason Kenney, uh, the Premier of Alberta. I've known him for many, many years. And uh, Alberta has struggled and suffered, and, uh, and, and much of the rest of the country has been blissfully unaware. China has begun to enforce its new security law for Hong Kong, and uh, under the law, no dissent against Beijing will be tolerated, and, and Hong Kong residents may be retroactively transported for trial to China, and penalties may include life in prison. Canada has suspended its extradition treaty with Hong Kong as a result. Also, special trade agreements and treatments for Hong Kong will be removed and subjected to regulations as though they were headed for mainland China. Guy Saint-Jacques is the former Canadian ambassador to China from 2012 to 2016. The ambassador has been very good to us with his time. Back with us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. So Ambassador Saint-Jacques, Beijing security law for Hong Kong in response to the massive months-long protest in the city. So Beijing is permitting itself to arrest, charge, and remove to mainland China for trial anyone the People's Republic decides is seditious, treasonous, and or working with a foreign power. Is the Xi government that afraid of the Hong Kong protests that have taken place over the last year? Well, I think they, uh, they are. <clears throat> and probably what they fear is uh, that, uh, that there is uh, some uh, contagion that uh, takes place uh, in the mainland. <clears throat> and this was perceived as a, a setback to the authority of Xi Jinping. And, and so... They decided to, to proceed, but I, I was surprised with uh, the speed at which they adopted the new law because uh, right, right after the holding of the National People's uh, Congress uh, at the end of May, uh, you know, observers were saying that the law would be adopted probably in August, and here we are in early July, and it's uh, already in place, and I think that they probably came to the, the conclusion that this was the right time to uh, proceed, that uh, the... Uh, uh, international attention was distracted with the COVID-19, and they just uh, decided to proceed. Is Canada's reaction to, to date strong enough, cancelling extradition and eliminating special arrangements for imports of some goods, uh, the, the treaty, cancelling the, uh, or suspending the treaty? Is that a strong enough response immediately? Well, I think it's a, a very good start, uh, and as well uh, to, to change the, uh, the travel advisory to uh, remind Canadians that uh, uh, things have changed. And I would say that anyone who has made uh, comments critical of the Chinese leadership uh, uh, on uh, social media uh, should be very careful about uh, going to Hong Kong, and of course that includes uh, myself. Because that means that if you go there under the, the new law, you could be arrested and uh, shipped to uh, the mainland uh, for uh, a trial. 
For the Kenyan government, I think now uh, what they probably need to do is to, and I assume a lot of that is taking place, it's uh, to speak with uh, allies, especially Australia, New Zealand, uh, the UK, the, the US, to compare notes, to decide on common measures that could be taken. But for sure, that means that uh, this development is uh, a, a big drawback for Hong Kong, uh, and it will uh, weaken its uh, status as an international financial and trade center. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, being concerned if you go to Hong Kong, if you've been on social media and have been challenging of, uh, of Beijing. Um, and and uh, and uh, and their security legislation. I received this uh, message from a contact I have in Hong Kong the other morning. I'm writing to you with a heavy heart. The Hong Kong national security law has been passed by Beijing. Fear is real and permeating among us. What exacerbates that fear is that the content of the law isn't even publicly available. I don't think it was at the time. There is a possibility that the law will be applied retroactively and that Hong Kongers may be extradited to China. Face trial and potential consequences could be life imprisonment. Many ordinary Twitter users have deactivated their accounts. Several activist groups in Hong Kong have announced that they have ceased operations, although many of their prominent members will still fight on in their personal capacity. What's happened to the justice system for the individual citizen in Hong Kong? Well, it seems that it's... Uh it uh, it has disappeared, and this was rule of law was one of the strengths of uh, Hong Kong. That's why a lot of uh, foreign business uh, businesses uh, like to uh, have a base in Hong Kong and and to do business which are not true Hong Kong because they had the guarantee that they could uh, rely on a dependable uh, legal system. Now. Of course, uh, that means that uh, this has disappeared. Let's recall that less than a year ago, there were huge demonstrations in Hong Kong to protest uh, the uh, extradition uh, treaty that would have allowed uh, people to be uh, extradited to uh, to China. Well, now this this law is like the, the War Measure Act or martial law because it uh, supersedes all other laws, and it means that... Uh, uh, China will be able to nab anyone, uh, uh, anyone they want in uh, in Hong Kong. And it means also that the 300,000 uh, Canadians uh, who are in Hong Kong will have to look very carefully at whether they are also uh, Chinese citizen and whether they should renounce formally their Chinese uh, citizenship. Because in the, in the past, China has, has forced people to renounce their foreign citizenship. Uh, and I think what this means also most likely is uh, that many people uh, will be thinking about uh, leaving Hong Kong uh, if they can. We have about 30 seconds left, uh, Mr. Ambassador. I believe I heard you say even you would have to be careful if you went to Hong Kong, if you tweeted or have been on social media and critical of the Chinese government. Would that apply to anybody? I think it will. it would apply to anybody, and that's why anyone who... Uh, would, uh, was planning at some point to go to, uh, to Hong Kong should review carefully what he or she has said because the Chinese are very well organized they, okay. and they know who their detractors are and this person could be at risk because China is known for uh, giving lessons and, and uh, uh, warning people uh, by uh, arresting uh, those uh, right. they're criticizing. Okay. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, thank you so much for the time. You've been very generous to us. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you very much. Ambassador Guy Saint-Jacques, he was the Canadian ambassador to China 2012 to 2016. So anybody 
if you've been on social media and critical of China and you go to Hong Kong, they could arrest you and charge you under that particular law, even though you're not a Chinese citizen or a, or a resident of Hong Kong. So now the Parliamentary Ethics Commissioner is closely monitoring claims of WE charity grants by the federal liberals after Justin Trudeau's claim only WE was qualified to administer a $900 million student grant program during the pandemic. Other Canadian charities have challenged Trudeau's assertion, and the federal government and WE charity have now parted ways on administering the program. Now the bureaucrats are going to do it, which should have probably been the way it should have gone from the very beginning, at least deciding which charities, charities and multiples would handle this particular program. Duff Conacher is co-founder of Democracy Watch. The organization is still challenging in federal court the ethics commissioner's ruling concerning the PMO interference in the SNC Lavlam federal prosecution. Duff, uh, great to have you back on the program. And the prime minister seems to wander from self-induced crisis to self-induced crisis. Here's another one. First, he announced that his decision that WE Charity would receive some $900 million to administer the student grant program and that WE is the only national charity with the ability to run the program, which doesn't sit well with other national charities. Then we found out that WE has been in receipt of multiple sole source contracts from the Trudeau government with the Prime Minister and his wife, major supporters. And now we have the government and WE parting ways on the administering of the student grant program. And now the Parliamentary Ethics Commissioner, selected by Mr. Trudeau, it should be remembered, is investigating. So of all of this, what's most concerning, big picture, to you and Democracy Watch? I guess probably most concerning is the Prime Minister's ongoing disregard for fundamental democratic governance rules, both in spending rules in this case and ethics rules. And I say that... Um, with the evidence that uh, Mark Kilberger said the Prime Minister's office called uh, his charity, the WE Charity, uh, after the Prime Minister announced that there would be such a program and asked them if they wanted to help. So if Prime Minister's office is calling, they're calling on behalf of the Prime Minister, and that's him intervening in a contracting process. And uh, secondly, uh, HuffPost Canada asked the Prime Minister's office, did he recuse himself from the Cabinet decision to hand this contract to WE without any competitive bidding? And the Prime Minister's office has not said one way or another. It sounds like he was at the table as well. So I, I say that, you know, it sounds like we have evidence that he was involved. And he's just disregarding these rules. I'm, I don't know what he's thinking. These are fundamental democratic good governance rules, and he continues to violate them. It is disturbing. It is, and you also have the National Post reporting that WE Charity received over $5 million in grants and support from a number of federal government departments reaching back to 2017. And then prior to 2017, actually between 2012 and 2016, the charity under its previous name, Kids Can Free the Children, received only a million dollars in federal grants and contributions. I guess Mr. Trudeau didn't think anybody was going to notice. Yes, and there is that pattern uh, of the Prime Minister appearing at WE Charities events, which boosts their profile and boosts his profile with their audience, a lot of whom are uh, about to vote because they're high school students mainly that their, uh, the WE Charity uh, delivers educational programs to. And then his wife gets involved uh, formally with the charity, Prime Minister's wife, his mom appears as well on behalf of the charity. 
he's appeared at multiple events. And then it comes to handing out government contracts and grants, and the Liberals get elected, and all of a sudden we is getting more money. That's a disturbing pattern as well. Um, you can't say it's directly trading favors, but it's a pattern of building a relationship with a politician, and the politician gets elected, and all of a sudden more government money is flowing towards them. And that's why the Auditor General, I hope, will continue the investigation. Uh, not even though this particular spending program has been stopped and we the we contract uh, cancelled after they they will still process a bunch of applications but then it will be cancelled uh, that I hope the Auditor General will still look at it um, because there is a spending pattern here that really raises questions about whether we're getting value for money or whether it is uh, money flowing to the Prime Minister's wife's favourite charity one of her favourite charities just because of that relationship Duff, what's the Parliamentary Ethics Commissioner's role in all of this? Going to look into it, but what can we expect? Well, uh, the, this current Ethics Commissioner did find Prime Minister Trudeau guilty last August of pressuring the Attorney General to uh, let SNC-Lavalin off the hook by stopping a prosecution against, against that company. Um, so he hasn't always ruled the way that uh, Demarcy Watch would like. We actually are challenging him in court and challenging his appointment as well by Trudeau because he was appointed by Trudeau at the time that the office was investigating Trudeau and other ministers. And we're trying to get the Supreme Court to hear both of those, uh, uh, hear that case about the appointments and the other cases uh, at the federal court level. Um, we'll see. He's, he's vowed to never be called a lapdog, but as I say, we're challenging one ruling in his that he made where he let all of the Prime Minister's office staff and others off the hook on the SNC-Lavalin situation, even though they also pressured the Attorney General just like Trudeau did. And he was found guilty, but they were let off. It's hard to say where he'll go on this one. I think if if Trudeau was at the table, he clearly violated the rules of not furthering your family's interests, given his wife's role in the charity, and, and also, I think, probably also giving preferential treatment to his wife, one of his wife's favorite charities. So uh, hopefully, uh, unless he can show clearly he wasn't there, documented with cabinet minutes that he wasn't at any of those meetings and didn't take part in any discussions, I hope the ethics commissioner will end up finding him guilty and the auditor general as well. Yeah, and, and but 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 then what? Well, uh, the politicians wrote these rules themselves, federal ethics law, put in the penalties themselves, and the penalty is just a report that he violated the law. It's very weak. It's far too weak, obviously, to discourage Trudeau from re- repeatedly violating the rules. Uh, our proposal is that the minimum fine should be a year's salary. These are people in public service, supposed to be upholding the public trust, and the penalties should be very harsh when they, when they violate those laws because those are the key laws that protect our democracy and ensure we have democratic good government and efficient and effective spending of our money. I just have a feeling that Mr. Trudeau feels that he can get away with anything that he wants to get away with, that the rules don't apply to him, that he has a license to do as he chooses, and particularly with a virtual parliament in place now, um, even though the uh, Ethics Commissioner, as you pointed out, um, uh, held him responsible for 
uh, PMO interference with uh, with the SNC Lavalin case, the, and the ethics commissioner. I think it was nine witnesses that he wanted access to that was blocked by Mr. Trudeau and the PMO. I just feel that Mr. Trudeau feels that uh, you know nothing can happen to me. I'm in charge, and that's the end of it. Yeah, what he forgets, and and what lots of uh, prime ministers have forgotten in the past, is that yeah, your rabid supporters of your party will always support you, and. It, and every party has their core who will support them no matter what. And those people hate the other parties and will follow the leader wherever the leader goes, no matter how unethical or, or dishonest or secretive or wasteful it is. But swing voters care about this stuff. And swing voters decide elections. They're the ones that swing back and forth between parties and, and why we have changes in government. And... Swing voters want democratic, honest, ethical, waste-preventing, open government because they know you're, you're not going to get any problems solved in society until you have that. If, if politicians can be there protecting their friends and their party supporters, how many problems do you think they're actually going to solve? They're, they're too busy protecting themselves and their family and their friends and party supporters. So Swing voters swing for that reason. They have back right through to 1993, Chrétien won running on the platform of governing with integrity. And no one was able to knock off the Liberals till Harper ran on, on uh, the Federal Accountability Act to increase accountability of the government. And then no one was able to knock off Harper until Trudeau ran on the platform of open, honest, accountable government. And so if any opposition party picks up on this stuff and really highlights it, and they did a little bit in the last election, but really the Conservatives and NDP didn't highlight this issue. The Greens highlighted it a bit more. And uh, Trudeau already dropped to a minority based on that. Swing voters will continue to swing away from the Liberals with this kind of governing. Because, again, they, they know that you, until you have democratic good government, you're not going to uh, solve problems in society. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering, Duff, whether the swing voters are being reduced in numbers because opinion is becoming so polarized? Uh, well, we'll see. It, it, there wasn't really evidence of that in the 2019 election. I mean, the Conservatives won more votes than the Liberals. And even though a lot of people think Andrew Scheer didn't run a great campaign, um, the Liberals won a minority with the lowest voting share they've had for decades. In the country's history, yeah. So it's. I don't think. I, I don't think we've seen that polarization to the extent we've seen it in the U.S. And also, there's a bunch of new voters coming up as young voters are now the the largest uh, voting block. So I think you'll continue to see that the 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 ten to fifteen percent. Sometimes it's up to twenty percent in a big election swing. Those people voting for who's going to de deliver clean, honest, accountable, open, ethical government and continue to punish parties and swing away from the parties that are there serving themselves and their party supporters uh, and uh, friends and family of the, of the prime minister. Well, it'll be very interesting to see what uh, what develops going forward, particularly with this case, because it's it's a hot-button issue, and it's a perfect opportunity for the opposition parties to really hammer this point home now, because the Prime Minister is in retreat 
to a certain extent. Look, you do a great deal of terrific work in, uh, in, in Canada, Democracy Watch does, to hold governments, political parties, all governments accountable. But I know it's not free. I know it's expensive work. How can, how can we as individual Canadians contribute to what you're doing? Well, people can contribute in two ways, uh, directly by donating, uh, but also uh, we have lots of campaigns, and if you go to the campaigns page on democracywatch.ca, you can also send a letter to all your federal and provincial politicians, your premier and the prime minister, and the federal party leaders, calling for these changes. These changes are needed across the country. All right. And uh, democracywatch.ca, everyone can see lots more information about how they can get involved and join the movement to make Canada the world's leading democracy. Duff, thank you so much for the time, and thanks for what you do. Thanks for your interest, Roy. Take care. Have a great day. All the best. Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, and it's democracywatch.ca, and you can individually contribute some money to their efforts. They, They really do hold governments, all governments, and political parties accountable. Don Iverson was a guest on this program not uh, so long ago, talking about his city being a hub city for the NHL playoffs. And yesterday, Toronto Mayor John Tory has said the NHL has an incredibly detailed plan for the hub cities. Obviously, Mr. Tory feels very strongly that Toronto will be the other hub city. As we all do, it's an open secret, but we're waiting for a final word from one Gary Bettman and the league on this. And let's talk about it. Well, I'm going to have my uh, ask my guests to talk about it. I'm going to get into the cheap seats, the thousand dollars per seat, and turn it over to uh, to Greg Brady, host of at uh, AM640 in Toronto, longtime sports journalist as well, and Bob Stoffer, Edmonton Oilers color analyst and host of Oilers Now Daily on 6:30. Chad Edmonton, guys, thanks for coming on. Totally, no great to be here. So let me ask you this question: uh, Will it be Edmonton and Toronto as the hub cities? And, and if the answer is yes, and clearly it appears to be, why no official announcement yet? Uh, Bob, let me start with you. Uh, I, I think we're likely headed uh, to that point if we're going to use uh, some sports jargon here. The ball's on the one-yard line and needs to be punched in. I think Frank Saravalli yesterday or today uh, wrote the pucks on the goal line. has got to be poked in Lynette. I think we're likely headed down that path, uh, you know, that uh, fashion. But there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot going on here, even beyond, and I'm sure Greg will allude to this as well, even uh, beyond if and when, uh, you know, Edmonton and Toronto are officially announced. Uh, they got, they're putting together a CBA. It's a six-year extension, uh, which it would be fantastic for the National Hockey League. And uh, in, in fairness, Roy, it's an announcement that would be made theoretically by the NHL and the NHLPA together, and this time they have a common foe, and that foe is COVID. And uh, yeah. they've got to be relentless in terms of... Uh, you know, working for a return-to-play format. So they're taking their time. Uh, they've factored in the Olympics as well, and uh, which is going to make the players very happy. And in order for this to work for return-to-play, Gary Batman, as the commissioner, fully knows that he's got to have the players on board. So there's been a lot of consultation, and that's why there is a little bit of a delay here. So let's put it all together. I'll step aside after I ask uh, Greg a quick question here, and have you please talk to each other about what is most significant about what's going on, including the new CBA. Greg, uh, no question that Toronto, well, <laughs> no official question, or that, that Toronto is going to be the uh, the hub city, just waiting for the announcement to come from the NHL. So I tweeted out earlier today, maybe an opportunity for Leafs fans to uh, have their once-a-century uh, Stanley Cup. And you, you took exception to that. I didn't quite understand. <laughs> and I'm not, by the way, I want to tell you why I thought of you after that, because I get done uh, my show in the morning, I go to the LCBO. The show wasn't that bad. 
But I go to the LCBO with my mask on, Roy, and the first person I see is a man with a Montreal Canadian mask on. And I thought, <laughs> it hasn't been that bad these last 27 years. It's, I mean, I know it's been a long time since they measured Marty McSorley's stick to get an upper hand in 93, but it hasn't been that long, has it? No. <laughs> Listen, I, whatever the Habs do is okay with me as long <laughs> No, I, I thought I was being generous. The, the Leafs will get there once a century Stanley Cup. It's you know, it's only another what forty-seven years. Well, I don't it's... know. If, I don't know, if Bob. Uh, if Bob and, and Oilers fans can relate, I mean, they were in a Game Seven final in that remarkable. I was covering that. That's right. Detroit. That's right. Time, that remarkable uh, eight seed team with Chris Pronger and, and Michael Pekka on it. But I mean, it, it hasn't been that long to where you know uh, Edmonton fans would say, "Well, I, I want to win." I wanted the Oilers in the Stanley Cup, but I don't want them to do it until I can be there. But I have heard Leafs fans say that. And at this point, with everything we've dealt with in, in four months, a win's a win. But I don't, Bob, I don't know from your perspective whether everybody in Edmonton, um, it feels like, is more um, down with this plan. I think they think it's good for tourism. There's obviously been a campaign um, with the clip Roy played. And, and Jason Kenny's right. There's probably no better place in, among the 31 franchises to do this they probably wanted a u.s team and a canadian team to to balance things out but it's it's not possible in las vegas and it's not possible in la but not everyone in toronto um wants to see these players here they, they want to sit in on their couch and watch hockey but i'm not sure they want um 50 60 staff plus players times 12 um walking their streets right now i'm not sure well the numbers speak for themselves in the case of uh you know edmonton i mean there's there's only 836 positive cases per million so far since the start of the outbreak. That would be, uh, amongst the 50 U.S. states, the only state that would have a lower total than that is Hawaii. And the last time I checked, they're not in the NHL. Uh, Edmonton's had, you know, 11 deaths per million. They've only had 15 deaths total. So, uh, you know, we've been very lucky here. Uh, there's some extenuated circumstances. Now, I could sit here and tell you that, you know, Edmonton's been incredibly disciplined. They did a great job at social distancing and everything else. But population density, lack of international travel out of the gate, kept the numbers down. Uh, the one thing that both Ontario and Alberta should be proud of is the fact that their provincial governments uh, are, are both placed a great emphasis on testing. They're, uh, you know, the two of the four most populous uh, provinces in the country, and they're the only two that have got north of uh, 100,000 tests per million. It's, but it's really interesting, you know, two conservative leaderships there, mm -hmm. and you look at B.C., and they've only tested roughly 40,000 people per million. Like, and I know their caseloads are, you know, low, but that's also a reflection of the fact they just haven't simply tested. I mean, the CDC reported last Friday that uh, they believe nine to 11 times, uh, you know, more people actually have positive cases in the U.S. and actually realize. So I think that shows the more you test, the more you're going to find. Greg, I totally get, you know, the situation in Ontario. I mean, you know, I just gave you Edmonton's numbers that, Mm -hmm. At you know eight hundred and thirty six per uh, per million, and Toronto's at five thousand two hundred and twenty four, which is still better, by the way, uh, than thirty three states in the U S. And there's only two states that have hockey that have got better numbers than that. One of them, St. Louis, is Missouri, and St. Louis has now got an outbreak. So, I get the nervousness. Uh, I can tell you, there's players uh, in places like St. Louis and Dallas that are concerned they might not even make it to a hub city. There's, you know, Dallas had a big outbreak with soccer. Numbers have played a huge factor in this with COVID. And the one advantage Canada's had is, for the most part, it's been fairly apolitical. Whereas in the state, yeah. clearly, it yeah. is a political challenge. And that is part of the reason why we've, you know, both countries had significant outbreaks out of, out of the gate. 
we've done a little bit better job, uh, well, a lot better job curtailing our situation, but there's still room for concern moving forward. Yeah, yeah and, and I think that's one of the scenarios where, you know, there's there's athletes that are getting concerned about heading down to, you know, the brush fire that Orlando is with the NBA. And there's, you know, the MLS team, Toronto FC, is very concerned. They haven't gone down to train yet, and they're supposed to play a match in this MLS return uh, six days from now. So, yeah, it's 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 complex. And, and Roy, I, I bring it up, I think Toronto sports fans in general – They've got concern about the Blue Jays. They love the Blue Jays, um, of but they're also that's that seems to be a plan that's a lot less foolproof. The idea of bringing in Major League Baseball teams uh, from some of these hot spots, playing games in Toronto, um, and not being self-contained. Whereas the NBA plan is to lock them down, keep them at one facility. Um, if you want to make an enemy of of, uh, of Toronto sports fans, you'll be out doing something basic. You'll, you know, Brad Marchand's already an enemy. He could only uh, double down and triple down on this uh, if if he's out doing irresponsible stuff um, at patio bars or whatever. But that's the thing. I, I think in Toronto, there's in Edmonton, be the same. There's only so many things you can do. We're only in the second stage. Uh, Roy, you're in Hamilton. Same scenario there. So the the uh, the aspect of athletes getting a little more loose and breaking. Uh, quarantines and breaking guidelines would have been way more possible in Chicago or Las Vegas or Los so, so guys, Toronto, we have about there's only so much trouble you can get in here. Um, we have about three. We have about three minutes left. Let me ask you the fans' question: Where will the Stanley Cup be played? The final? <laughs> if we get to that point in, in either Edmonton or Toronto, how's that for a politically correct answer for you? <laughs> I lean more Edmonton. I do think I, I just think you're playing the percentages a lot better. I think the league's hoping the 12 teams will go. What, what we're stuck on too, Roy, is this is going to be a lot of hockey. I mean, Bob's covered the playoffs a long time. Um, it is it's an awful lot of hockey, and generally speaking, four seven game series spread out. So there's no travel, so but I don't know whether that means they're going to try and squeeze three games in four days, four games in six days, sometime. And now with an extra five-game round that your Canadians are in or the Chicago Blackhawks are in, a team could be potentially playing upwards of 29, 30 games to get to the Stanley Cup final. And that's just never happened before. So the fatigue and the health, it's all something to keep an eye on. Yeah. Well, Roy, I just, I just want to, you know what, I just want to see the NHL teams get to the hub cities. I'm fairly confident of what Edmonton could do. You know, Bob Nicholson, uh, we've got a guy named Stu Ballantyne that works for us. He worked on the Olympic Committee. That's Edmonton's structure. Edmonton's kind of building an Olympic Village-style type of scenario. But I, I just want the players to stay healthy. They're the show. That's who I care That's about. True. And in order for us to get all the way to the finish line and to a point where we can award a Stanley Cup championship, we're going to need some luck. We're going to need the rates to stay low in Edmonton. We're going to uh, need, you know, Toronto to continue to, to have decreasing numbers. And uh, and then we gotta have a scenario where players don't end up, uh, you know, having an outbreak with one specific team that knocks the team out. A right. lot of things Guys, have to go right, but you know what? You got to keep the dream alive. It's been a year like no other. Um, I, I, sports a year like no other. For the fan, it's just exciting to contemplate the NHL back in action and seeing the stars playing for the Stanley Cup. Greg Brady, Bob Stoffer, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 